0: If you would like to turn and to Re- Revelation chapter 14 and put a bookmark in that chapter, Revelation chapter 14. That's right, we're going back to Revelation for a little bit in the last half of the sermon today because it is what Joel chapter 3 refers to. So you can put a bookmark there and we're going to read some verses in Revelation chapter 14 toward the end of the message. So uh, let us go to the Lord in prayer. And then we'll go to God's word together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to pray for different needs within our body. We pray, Lord, for Peter Mitskevich serving at Moscow Theological Seminary. We pray, Lord, for he and Tatiana as they minister in Russia and proclaim the gospel. We also pray, Lord, for Hazlitt Bible Church and for the work that's being done there every Sunday afternoon. I pray for Scott Stein as he uh, teaches this afternoon, and we pray, Lord, that that would go well. We pray, Lord, also that that church will continue to be built up. We thank you, Lord, for those who are serving in our armed forces, those names listed in the bulletin, um, for Andrew, Gabriel, Boomer, and Emmanuel. We also pray for the two carrier groups that are in the Mediterranean now, made up of uh, sailors and airmen and Marines. We pray for their protection And we also pray, Lord, for the hostages that are in Gaza. And we pray that they would be freed very quickly so they can be back to their families. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray, Lord, that the war will be brief, that justice will be done. We pray, Lord, also for those women in our congregation who are pregnant. We pray also for those families who desire to have children but aren't currently pregnant. We pray for success if they are entering the adoption process We also pray, Lord, for the volunteer needs of the BCBC Kids Ministry and that those needs would be met above and beyond our expectations. So, Father, we also pray for our country during these troubling times, times of division. We pray for our president, our congress, our courts, our governor, our local officials, our mayor, our city council, our school board. We pray, Lord, that they would desire to apply biblical principles and um, we pray That our culture would move back into that direction, but even more important, that there would be revival in our land. I pray, Father, that there would be many who would trust in Jesus and put their faith in him rather than in the world system. So, Father, we put all this before you for your consideration, and we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. Well, I remember way back in 2001 uh, when 9-11 took place, and it was on my schedule, which I usually prepare three or four months in advance in terms of what I'm going to preach on, that, that following Sunday I was scheduled to preach on Judges chapter 6 because I was doing a, a expository study of the entire book of Judges, and so Judges chapter 6 was up next. And it blew my mind over what Judges chapter 6 was all about. It was about the Midianites and their continual raids against the people of Israel and how they terrorized the people of Israel. And then eventually the raising up of Gideon as one of the judges to fight against the Midianites, battle of which he was ultimately successful. And I thought, this passage... Is all about terrorism. And I didn't even plan to preach on that. That's just what came up next. Judges 5 was last week, and now it's Judges 6. Anyway, I had a very similar experience this past week. I mean, if I had to pick, or the entire Bible, a passage of Scripture that would could be applied to what happened this week, indirectly albeit, but yet... Uh, It's very relevant. I mean, I would pick Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. And you'll know what I mean as we go through the passage here. The timing is amazing. And I didn't have anything to do with it. That's a coincidence, you know, the way it works out that way sometimes. So in the book of Joel, there are three chapters. It's a very simple book. In fact, next week will be our last week in this small three-chapter book. And the three chapters are easily broken down because Joel talks about three days of the Lord. And in Joel chapter one, there is a devastating locust invasion that destroyed the agriculture and the economy of the nation of Israel. But the people at that time were kind of insensitive to God working in their lives. And so they most likely attributed it to just a, a natural occurrence. But Joel drove home the point. He made sure that they understood That the reason why they were invaded by locusts was because God was disciplining them, and it had nothing to do with just an arbitrary act of nature. And so Joel chapter 1 is about a locust invasion. Joel made sure that they knew that there was a spiritual cause to this destruction. And the answer was spiritual also, since the cause was spiritual. Spiritual. He warned Israel that there would be another disaster, a disaster that he talked about invaded by locusts was because God was disciplining them. And it had nothing to do with just an arbitrary act of nature. And so Joel chapter one is about a locust invasion. Joel made sure that they knew that there was a spiritual cause to this destruction. The, and the answer was spiritual also, since the cause was spiritual. He warned Israel that there would be another disaster, a disaster that he talked about in Joel chapter 2. But in Joel chapter 1, he told them as a response to this supernatural judgment, he told them to fast, he told them to assemble, to listen to their elders and to cry out to God. A supernatural problem needed to be responded to with a supernatural answer. And so this is what Israel needed to do. Then in Joel chapter 2, he described the army uh, that would invade Israel if Israel stayed the same, if they did not repent, if they did not enter into restoration with God. And then in the middle of Joel chapter 2, God promised to bless his people if they would only change their mind about their sins and turn from their wicked ways. They could avoid the invasion by Assyria, but would Israel repent? Would they have to go through another devastating series of setbacks in Joel chapter two, experience another day of the Lord, not from the hands of or not from the devastation of locusts, but rather from the devastation of the Assyrian army? If they chose to agree with God about their sin, they would be blessed. In fact, God gave them A foreshadowing of a future blessing. I want more than anything else to bless my people, the nation of Israel. And if you repent and turn from your wicked ways, I will bless you. I will bless your socks off. And he said, I will send the Spirit. I will give you the Spirit. See, God gives us unconditional gifts, but he also wants to give us conditional gifts. And oftentimes... We get into trouble because we can't see the difference between those two. So sometimes we make the unconditional gifts conditional. The the unconditional gifts is our salvation. For Israel, it was the fact that God made them his people. In Genesis chapter 12, you will be my people and anyone who blesses you will be blessed and anyone who is cursed will be cursed. But regardless of what you do, regardless of your behavior and your performance, you will always be my people. Now, I will discipline you if you get off track. If you start to worship false gods, if you enter into idolatry, I will most certainly discipline you. I'll even use foreign armies to be my act of discipline. But you are unconditionally my people. And God does the same thing with us as the church. If we trust in Jesus Christ as our savior, if we place our faith alone in him, the person and work of Jesus, that he died for us as our substitute, we are given the unconditional gift of salvation. We can't pay for it. We can't even begin to put a down payment on it. And so it's got to be given to us graciously, freely. But then God also wants to give us conditional gifts as well. He also wants to give Israel conditional gifts. He wants them to actively and proactively walk with him and be his witness on the face of the earth so that other tribes, other nations, other tongues will receive the Messiah as their Savior and their Lord. So there's the unconditional and then there's the conditional. He wanted Israel to receive these conditional blessings as well as they would be obedient to the Mosaic Covenant. But the right conditions had to be met. And Israel just wasn't there, to put it very lightly. So the nations, which God will use as his instrument of discipline on Israel, they too will ultimately be judged. And so that's what he talks about in the first actual eight verses. But let's just look at the first four verses of Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. It says this, In those days and at that time, When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, you see God's intention there is to bless them, to do good things for them and to them. I will restore their fortunes. But then he kind of shifts gears in verse 2. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And we'll learn more about that in verse 12. So just put that on the shelf for a minute. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. So this is really an introductory statement on blessing and why these other people groups, why these other nations deserve punishment and god is justified in judging them because of the things the awful the horrendous things that they have done specifically to israel but then in the next few verses in verses five through eight he gives a lot more detail on his rationale for judging them look what verses five through eight say in joel three actually starting in verse five, uh, four Now what have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon and all your regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them. I will return. I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah that they will sell to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. And the Lord has spoken. So Tyre and Sidon and Philistia would benefit from Judah's demise. In fact, they would sell a bunch of them as slaves to the Greeks. So, what are Tyre and Sidon and Philistia? Well, here in this map, you can see way up in the top part, Tyre and Sidon are there in present day Lebanon. Those are coastal cities. But then there is also Philistia, which is in current-day Gaza. So these are some of the nations that God used as a, a disciplinary agent against Israel, his own people. But then there's a certain point in time when God will turn the tables. And God would actually judge them. God would repay them for their offenses, for their extreme behavior against his beloved people. In fact, the people of Tyre, they traded slaves with the Greeks. And many of the slaves were Israelites and Judeans. In fact, the Bible itself talks about this slave trade in Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 13. As it's directed toward the city of Tyre, Greece, Tubal, and Meshech did business with you. They traded human beings and articles of bronze for your wares. And this is a prophecy that Joel made that has already come true because in about 400 years, the tables would be turned and the people of Tyre and Sidon and Philistia would be sold to the Greeks Everything would be reversed. They would be captured and they would be sold as slaves to their former slave traders themselves, the Greeks. So it's a prophecy that has already taken place 400 years after Joel had written it. So what is the principle? What's the takeaway? What's the understanding? What's the summary of these first eight verses? It could be this, that God will graciously bless his people. And we'll see that, especially in the second half of Joel chapter three, God will bless his people and justly punish their enemies at the right time. And so God here expresses the rationale for his judgment of those nations that have persecuted and oppressed Israel. Note note that the way. God communicates the possession of these important resources. He says, my people, these are my people. This is my land. This is my silver. This is my gold. These are my treasures. They're not yours, Israel's. They're certainly not the people of Tyre or Sidon or the Philistines. Israel, you don't own these things. You are only stewards over them. In fact, The same thing could be said said about our very own persons and the persons of the little people that live in your house. Your children are not your possessions. My children are not my possessions. I am only a steward over them. But then you could say it even goes further than that. Even my own body is not my own. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own. You don't own you. Someone else owns you, and he's the one who created and sustains you and gives you eternal life when you place your faith in the Son of God. And so when we lose something, we're not technically losing that person because God has already owned that person from even before they were created. God will fulfill his promises. He is a promise keeper God. Israel was always, I mean, continually in cycles of prosperity, sin, idolatry, discipline, danger, repentance, rescue, and restoration. That same cycle happened again and again and again. And I think it even continues today. Right now, Israel is a secular democracy. And They are the people of God, but yet this nation state that exists in the Middle East is not a theocratic monarchy by a long shot. In fact, in Israel, you have one of two extremes. You either have people who are very, very religious and the orthodox and the others, or you have people who are very, very secular. In fact, a big percentage of people who live in Israel are atheists or agnostics. They just recognize that they are ethnic Jews. But Israel... Was always, it, I mean, almost always. They, they had a few high points, like under King David, you know, and a few other high points, Hezekiah and so on. But Israel was almost always unstable, but God was always steady. He is the rock. He would always preserve Israel. A Jewish proverb says No misfortune avoids a Jew. Someone wrote, no people have suffered more at the hands of their fellow men than have the Jews. Pharaoh tried to drown the Jews, but instead his own army was drowned. Balaam tried to curse the Jews, but God turned the curse into a blessing. The Assyrian and Babylonians captured the Jews and put them in exile. But both of those great kingdoms are no more. They are on the ash heap of history, and so are so many others. Both of those great kingdoms, Assyria and Babylon, are no more, while the Jews are still very much with us. Haman tried to exterminate the Jews, but he and his sons ended up hanging on the gallows. Nebuchadnezzar put three Jews in a fiery furnace only to discover that their God was with them and was able to deliver them. One Jewish man once said, we Jews are waterproof and fireproof. (laughs) I love that. God has blessed us so that nobody can successfully curse us, and we shall be here long after our enemies have perished. It's true. It's true. It's amazing. There were about 40 million Jews before World War II. Of course, they lost many of their ranks because of Nazi Germany and other causes. And now, 80 years later, they've finally gotten back. To about 40 million. They are a small group. In a sea of 8 billion people. But. They are a very powerful nation. They have nuclear weapons. And they have a fantastic army. And they are. The only. Definable. People group. That has survived. Since the time. Of Moses and Joshua. All the Canaanite peoples. They've all blended into one as the Palestinians, all of those tribes, the parasites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Amalekites, the Midianites, they're all gone. When was the last time you heard, oh, honey, I think a family of Midianites just moved in down the street. You don't hear about those nations anymore, and they were all more powerful than Israel. But Israel has not only just survived, it's actually thriving quite well, thank you. This lone survivor status, I believe, is an excellent evidence for the truth of Scripture and to the witness of the promise-keeping characteristics of Yahweh. It is hardcore evidence that there's something going on here. There's something special because all the other people groups are gone. God will judge the nations, but those nations, they will be prepared for battle. They won't be passive. Look what Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 16 say. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full, and the, the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord, it's near in the Valley of Decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel, all the soldiers. Muster them all. Bring them to a place. Uh, The weapons, they will be fabricated. In fact, in Joel chapter 3, it's the opposite of what Isaiah talks about will happen in the millennial kingdom. There, the weapons will be made into implements of agriculture. Here, it's just the opposite. The agricultural implements will be made into weapons of war. The economy shifts from farming to fighting, and there is great urgency. Go to the valley. Go to this place. Some say it's the Kidron Valley, which is just right outside of Jerusalem, and it's possible, but I've been to that valley, and it's really small. It's barely a dent in the ground, but this valley is huge. It's called Armageddon, or the Valley of Megiddo, or to the Jezreel Valley. I think that the valley of Jehoshaphat is this place, most commentators, I would agree with. Come to that conclusion: This tell or this hill is called Megiddo. In fact, we were just there in May. <laughs> this is the place, most likely, this valley in the north, called the Jezreel Valley that meets and runs into the Jordan River Valley, a distance of about 180 miles. And if you remember from our study of Revelation chapter 14, that distance is significant. We'll get to that in a minute. But there is this valley go there because what will take place? There will be a harvest, a harvest of multitudes, multitudes. There will be a heavenly phenomenon. Everything will get dark. And God will protect his people. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 14. And we'll do a brief review of what we studied about eight or nine months ago. Revelation chapter 14, starting at verse 14. There, John reports this. He says, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he that was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who was in charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grape, grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle over the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath, they were trampled in the wine press out of the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of sixteen hundred stadia, equaling about one hundred and eighty miles. What's going on here? Can you see the similarity between Joel chapter three verses nine through sixteen and Revelation chapter fourteen verses fourteen through twenty? Yeah. There's a lot of similarities between those two passages of scripture written about 800 years apart. In fact, um, both authors, both prophets, use the motif or the analogy of a harvest. What does a harvest mean in the Bible? A harvest almost always refers to some sort of judgment. The earth will be reaped; it will be judged. He uses the analogy or picture of a wine press, another analogy of judgment on the face of the earth as well. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 16, it's the only place in scripture where the word Armageddon is used, but it refers to this event. When all of the nations of the world muster their armies, with one last-ditch effort to destroy the nation of Israel. And they will gather, most likely, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the army, or the valley of Armageddon. And John reports to us there that the blood will run so deep that it will reach The bridle of a horse, probably roughly, what, about five feet or so. Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And the blood will run about five feet deep from where they gather in the valley of Armageddon all the way down the Jordan River Valley. Because the nations will muster their armies here, millions and millions, maybe even a billion soldiers all the nations of the world rise up against Israel to snuff it out, to destroy it. Their final destination is not the Valley of Armageddon. That's just where they're gathering. Their final destination is Jerusalem. They want to destroy the city of, God, of David. They want to snuff out this place where the throne of David exists, where the prophets tell us that Jesus will sit upon this throne and rule the world for a thousand years. we got to get to it before he gets to it. We have to destroy the city. But they fail miserably. Why? Well, because God promised that he would preserve his people. And he's done that perfectly over the last 2,000 years. They've taken a lot of hits. They've lost a lot of people. But that nation has survived and it has thrived in the community of nations. So, Revelation chapter 16, verse 16, tells us a little bit about Armageddon. But then what about the other phenomenon that Joel and John report on about the skies becoming dark? Well, we see that the sixth bowl is the war of Armageddon itself, But then we back up to the seals, the first series of judgments against the earth, that there'll be signs in heaven. And then, finally, the trumpet judgments. The fourth one is that the sun and the stars all go dark. And that all takes place in Revelation chapter 16. It all coincides. The judgments, the heavenly phenomenon that takes place, And then finally, the judgment against the enemies of the nation of Israel, the enemies of God. And so the nations will prepare for a final conflict, but will most certainly be judged by a massive defeat. See, God disciplines his people. We know that. Sometimes he corrects them with other enemy nations. God uses his creativity and his sovereignty to discipline us frequently, to get us a course correction that we desperately need. And he uses the most unusual things to get our attention, to kind of thump us on the side of the head a little bit and say, hey, you need to pay attention. You need to get your life together. You need to drop some things and add some things. God disciplines his people. Sometimes he corrects them with other enemy nations. But He judges these nations that threaten Israel's survival. He protects His people. Why? Because He promised to do just that. He makes promises and He keeps them. So He is trustworthy. Because what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? Knowing that we're kind of in the middle of things. A lot of things in Scripture have already happened. There's the first coming. And we're looking forward to the second coming, but a lot of people haven't even heard of the first coming yet, so we've got some work to do, right? Right? Amen? Amen. Yeah, okay. I want to make sure you're with me, you're tracking with me here. So we're kind of in the middle of things because a lot of things have already happened, but yet scripture tells us that there are a lot of things yet to happen. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that information now? Well, the safest bet, the safest thing that we could do with this information is see the character of God. That's the thing that we really need to absorb and soak in and appreciate and apply in our lives. Because, yeah, there are the events, and we should pay attention to those events, but we should also pay very close attention to the one who's allowing those events to take place. A sovereign, merciful, creative, loving God who is in control and he keeps his promises. Meaning, this is a God who is not arbitrary. This is a God who on many things is actually predictable and that's a good thing. And so as a result of his covenants, of his packages of promises and the fulfillment of those benefits to whoever he makes those promises to, we can clearly glean that this God is trustworthy. You can bank on him. You can trust him that he loves you. Because, wow, he has proven his love to us more than anyone else. He sent his only son to die for us. But yet he still chooses To sustain us. Why? Because he promised to do that. So he's trustworthy. I believe in a thing that I kind of labeled transformational trust. Because it's an active. It's not a passive trusting where you just like sit back and say, okay, God, you do your thing and I'm just going to kind of be a spectator. No, this is a participation uh, relationship. So it's transformational trust. I have active trust. I actually walk with you, and I do some things that i thought through that the world would judge maybe as risky, but I see it as faith instead. Like we go to crazy places like the border in Mexico. Who wants to go there? Well, our Mexican brothers and sisters live there. So isn't it reasonable for us to go visit them once in a while? Take proper precautions and so on, but hey, we're going there today. So we do things that the world would see, a little crazy, a little risky maybe. We walk by faith. God, why can't you just answer all our questions through skywriting or handwriting on the wall? It would be so much easier. You know what would happen if God did that? We would forget him. That's why he wants us to walk by faith and not by sight because we continually need need to lean into him. Trust him. And we can trust him because we know him so well. He's so trustworthy. And so that trust is active. It also doesn't include certain things. It does not include anxiety. Anxiety is absent. And so as a result of really leaning into Him and trusting in Him, we can have an absence of anxiety. We don't have to be afraid. If we fear God, we don't need to fear anything else. And so therefore, this transformational trust, it includes certain things. It accepts mystery. It doesn't have to have all the questions answered. It walks by faith. Although it looks for answers. It's active. It does not include anxiety And it also firmly believes and lives out this important truth that it says that this is not our final destination. <laughs> and we are just pilgrims here. A continual reminder of not to get too comfortable. Maybe not to like it all that much. Reminding, hey, we live in a real comfortable environment. Living in, I mean, you know, Keller, Texas. Compared to other places in the world, it's a pretty nice place to be. So we can easily fall into liking it a lot here and seeing this as our final destination. But Scripture does not teach that. So my friends, the big takeaway for us is to trust Him like we've never trusted Him before because of this phenomenal information that we see in Scripture. But the most important information that we see is not about events. It's about the nature of our God. And how we can trust him. And allow that trust to change us from the inside out. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for revealing who you are. For telling us. Sending Jesus. To provide the means by which we can know you and make you known. Help us to... As we look forward to the second coming, help us to be real active in telling as many people as possible about the first coming.